question for you. When is it easiest to love people? You think about the people in your life, your spouse, your friends, your kids, your parents, uh, your teachers, your boss, co-workers, uh, neighbors, maybe just even acquaintances. Uh, when is it easiest to love them? When is it easiest to treat them with kindness and gentleness and respect? When is it easiest to enjoy them? When, you know, when do you feel like you really like them? When are those times? When are people easiest to love? It's, if you're like me, it's when they're doing what I want them to do, or they're uh, following my instructions. They're easiest to love when they're loving me. It's easy to love people when they're agreeing with me. You know, it's hard to love someone when they're disagreeing with me. They're easy to love when they're treating me like I want to be treated. So think about that. Who in your life is easiest for you to love? Who comes to mind? From the flip side, when are people most difficult to love? When is it hardest to love the people in your life? And it's often when they aren't being very loving to us. When they aren't being kind. When they aren't patient and respectful. It's hard to love others when they are hurting us. And so think about who in your life is hardest to love. And don't, you know, don't turn and look at the person next to you or something like that. Uh, who are the people in your life uh, that are hardest to love? Who comes to mind? And how can we love people who are hard to love? We all have people in our life that are hard to love, that uh, maybe are just kind of rub us the wrong way, or they disagree with us all the time, they don't do what we say, uh, we don't see eye to eye on lots of things, and they're hard for us to love. How can we even love people who have wronged us? who have hurt us, who have treated us terribly. How can we even love them in the moment that they're treating us terribly? And today we're looking at Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 38, as we continue this series to seek and to save in the Gospel according to Luke. And the primary command given in this passage is love your enemies. Jesus says it twice, in verse 27, and then again in verse 35. Love your enemies. And if we think about that, that's a that's a high bar. Couldn't it be a little easier? You know, I kind of like the love your neighbors yourself thing. But now you're taking it, love your enemies, the people that are against you. What a difficult command to keep. And it's not natural for us to love our enemies. In fact, it's very unnatural. It's the last thing you want to do. In fact, you probably heard it in your brain, you know, fight, flight. Uh, and when we experience an enemy, we either fight against them or flight. We run away from them. And so it's unnatural for us. What's natural for us is to avoid our enemies, to protect ourselves from our enemies, or to get payback on our enemies. But, but love? To treat them like a friend or a family member, someone that we cherish, to love our enemies? That's out of the question many times. But it's what Jesus commands twice. <laughs> In fact, uh, this enemy love is a defining characteristic of Christian love. Enemy love is what sets Christians apart from all other types of of love, and it's rooted in the character of God. And this passage uh, gives us three different ways we can love, and if you, this would be the options that if you want to walk away from this and know, here's the options of how I can love, what this passage is about, and here they are. We can love like others have loved you. You can love like you want to be loved, or you can love like God has loved you. So you can love like others have loved you. You can love like you want to be loved. Or you can love like God has loved you. 
And what does each one look like? What does each one look like in our lives? And Jesus is going to show us. So let's start the first section of this part of the sermon in verses 27 through 31. In verse 27, Jesus uh, says, But I say to you who hear. And the but tells us that what he's about to say is in contrast to what has come before. And what came before is Jesus first gave this list of Beatitudes. He's saying, Blessed are you uh, when... These are all the blessings of being part of this kingdom. Blessed, you are blessed. But then he also gives a list of woes, uh, of things that are uh, true of people that aren't part of this kingdom. And the final blessing he gives in verse 22 says this, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. This Jesus is telling his disciples up front, you are going to have enemies. You're going to have people who hate you, who exclude you, who revile you, who, who spurn your name, who speak poorly about you. And Jesus is telling his disciples, he's expecting them to have enemies. He's expecting them to have enemies for their loyalty to him, for their beliefs, for how they're living their life. And so now here, verse 27, Jesus is saying, you know, there's going to be these enemies. Blessed are you because your reward is great. Verse 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And the natural thing for us to do is to fight back, to avoid them, to protect ourselves, to get payback. But Jesus doesn't tell us to do that. He says, love your enemies. And the actions there to take to love your enemies come in the, the commands that follow this. Uh, he says, love your enemies. And he says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. People will hate Jesus' disciples. They will curse Jesus' disciples. And they will abuse them. And what is a follower of Jesus supposed to do in response? Jesus' disciples are to do good in response. To bless them in response. To pray for them in response. In response to their hatred, cursing, mistreatment. We're to use our hands to do good and our mouths uh, to bless them and Pray for them. All parts of us are supposed to love our enemies. And here Jesus has in mind enemies that are coming about specifically because of their commitment to and loyalty to Jesus, because of their beliefs. There's going to be people, he's warning, that aren't going to like who you follow and aren't going to like what you believe. And when it comes to people fighting against us because of our beliefs, we're not to treat them as they treat us. That's the specific context here. Jesus assumes that if you're following me, people are going to know you're following me, and some people aren't going to like it. They're going to respond with hostility, with opposition, even maybe with violence. But more broadly, we can apply these commands to any situation where someone wrongs us, disrespects us, mistreats us, or is fighting against us. And think back again, who are those people in your life that are hard to love? This applies to all those situations. And Jesus follows this with four practical and concrete situations in which his followers are to love their enemies. So verses 29 and 30 say this, To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And striking one on the cheek was like this, like using the back of your hand and like slapping somebody um, for what they said. And in this context, Jesus is assuming Maybe somebody's saying, Jesus is Lord. And it's like, she gives a, a slap with the back of the hand. And then he says, uh, you know, offer your other also. Which is, 
don't stop witnessing for Jesus. Don't stop uh, trying to tell people about Jesus. Like, they've slapped you, and now, okay, I guess I'm done with this whole thing. It's like, no, keep going, and offer the other one also. There are, they means continue their witness, risking the other cheek being slapped. And someone may also suffer robbery from their clothes being taken. Maybe they're just, you know, uh, going along on the road, and somebody takes their clothes, and the cloak he's referring to was like an outer robe, and the tunic was like this inner shirt. And Jesus says, if someone takes your outer robe, uh, give them your inner shirt as well. And maybe this happened during general travel, or maybe it happened while talking about Jesus. Like, hey, let's let's you know get this guy to be quiet. Like, we'll beat him up and take his clothes and see how he likes that. And he says, well, you should still keep going in your witness. You should, that should not stop you. Like, you should just keep going. Like, they've taken your outer robe. Okay, you can have my inner shirt as well. I'm going to keep doing this. I'm not going to stop talking about Jesus. And giving to those who beg from you is a command to show generosity towards the poor. Jesus' disciples uh, are to be ready to give when there's a legitimate need to meet. And finally, Jesus says, don't demand back what others take from you. We should not seek retribution or payback. And all of this occurs specifically in the context of living on mission for Jesus. But it can also be applied generally to in any in every situation we're to love, do good, bless, pray for, persevere, be willing to suffer, give, and not retaliate or seek retribution. And what would that look like for you in the difficult relationships in your life? Who are people that are difficult for you to love? What would it look like to do these things Jesus is talking about? And Jesus gives a summarizing command in verse 31. He says, As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So we have two options. We can love like others have loved us, or we can love like we want to be loved. Which one are we going to do? We can treat others how they have treated us, or we can treat others how we want to be treated, regardless of how they have treated us. We can give what others have given to us, or we can give what we want to be given, despite what they have given us. And starting in either the 16th or 18th century, it's hard to know, uh, this command of Jesus began being called the Golden Rule. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Or it's often been stated, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And similar rules existed in Greek culture and Jewish culture and other religions around the world. And this is one of the reasons that many people will say, well, you know, all the religions are basically the same. They all kind of tell you to do this one thing. You know, love others how you want to be loved. Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. All of the religions have this golden rule, so they're all uh, basically the same. I'm sure you possibly heard people say that. But Jesus' statement is more powerful and positive than these other versions. Other versions may state it negatively. Don't do to others what you don't want done to yourself. And this keeps you from doing bad things to others, but it doesn't move you to doing good to them. You know, don't do what you don't want done uh, to you. That's a negative way to state it. Other versions state it with a view for what you can expect to receive back from others. If you treat others how you want to be treated, then they will do the same to you. So it's thinking, there's something I'm going to get in return for this. You know, I'm going to do good, and good will be done to me. But Jesus puts no conditions on this command. In fact, he commands it while talking about persecution, mistreatment, getting beat up and robbed. Jesus gives this command while talking to people who have already treated us how we don't want to be treated. He's saying, when people have already treated you how you don't want to be treated, how should you now respond to them? Jesus called his followers not to retaliate and to treat those people as they have treated his disciples 
uh, not to retaliate against them, but to treat them as we would like to be treated. This is enemy love. Loving your enemies as you want to be loved. Don't love your enemies like they've loved you. Love your enemies like you want to be loved. And that's hard enough. But he goes further. Verses 32 through 36, Jesus gives the basis for this command to, to love our enemies. Verses 32 and 34, through 34, he uh, gives examples of love where a return is expected. And he contrasts the behavior of his disciples, what the, his disciples should have, with what uh, sinners have. And sinners are those who have not responded to Jesus in this sermon. Every disciple starts as a sinner, but when we respond to Jesus, that's no longer our primary identity. That's no longer who we are. Now we're followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. We're citizens of his kingdom. We're children of God. And so he's saying, people have not responded. It's like, do you want to have, do you want to love like a sinner? Or do you want to love in this other way I'm telling you about? Which choice do you have? So three times Jesus asked, what benefit is that to you? What benefit is it to you to love when a return is expected? So let's read verses 32 through 34. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to give back the same amount. So he says, even sinners love those who love them, do good to those who do good to them, and lend to give back the same amount or more with interest. And Jesus, what he's describing here is transactional relationships. It's uh, saying, you know, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's asking the question, what's in this for me? So he's saying, don't get into these transactional relationships where you're looking for, what's my return on this investment? What am I going to get out of this? If I do this to them, what are they going to do for me? Maybe what we do to others is, you know, I want them to do the same thing for me. Maybe we want their approval. Or maybe we want their appreciation. Maybe we want them to like us. And Jesus says, if you're thinking about relationships in this way, it is of no benefit to you. And I've used this image before of uh, tugging on a rope. And if you feel like you're going to have a difficult relationship with someone, someone who's hard to love, it maybe feels like there's a lot of tension. Like there's this rope between you and you just keep pulling on it. It's like, I want this from you. This is what I desire from you. And they're pulling back and they're saying, no, this is what I want from you. And there's this tension in the relationship. And when we're in transactional relationships, we're in this tug of war with the other person. We're trying to pull out of them what we need, what we desire. We're trying to pull love out of them. You know, love me like I want to be loved. We're, trying to, we're in this tug of war with them, and we do things in order to get something. But instead, Jesus says in verse 35, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And so here, two motives are brought up for loving our enemies. Your reward will be great, he says, that's one motive. And secondly, you will be sons of the Most High. If we love like this, if we treat others like this, we'll be called sons of the Most High, because that's how God treats us, that's how God loves us. He says, uh, we'll be sons of the Most High, because God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God loves people who are ungrateful, who will never say thank you, that are unappreciative, who lack gratitude, and who are evil, who hate, who abuse, who mistreat, who curse, who rob, who even do those things to him. I mean, God can't, you know, be harmed, like abused in that way, but people who care nothing about him, who care nothing about his laws, who care nothing about his creation, God is even kind to them. 
And so if we want to love like God, we need to love those types of people too, Jesus is saying. And God rewards those who reflect what he is like to others. Jesus gives another summarizing command. He says, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. If we're in relationship with the Father, God, our Heavenly Father, we'll reflect the mercy of our Father. Recipients of mercy become givers of mercy. We show ourselves to be God's children by reflecting what He is like. We take on the family resemblance. Whatever our Heavenly Father is like, He's showing that to us, and then it's coming out of us to others. And God is pleased with His children who show what He's like to others, and He rewards them. The basic command here is, love like God has loved you. There are three different ways we can love. We can love like others have loved us. We can love like we want to be loved. We can love like God has loved us. And to love like God is to have no expectation of return. To love like God is to love those who are ungrateful, who will never say thank you, who will never appreciate what you do. And to love like God is to love even those who are evil, who don't do good to you. To love like God is to love your enemies. In the final two verses, verses 37 and 38, Jesus applies verse 36, uh, showing us what it looks like to be merciful and the reward we can expect. He says, you know, be merciful even as your heavenly Father is merciful. And now he says, okay, what does that look like? The person who's in relationship with God will be transformed by that relationship. It will change them, and thus they're going to treat others different. They're in relationship with God, and now that's going to transform how they do all their other relationships. And as Jesus will later say in this sermon, a tree is known by its fruit. A relationship, if we're the trees, a relationship with God transforms the tree. And you can tell if a tree is transformed by looking at its fruit. How does this person love? Are they merciful? How do they treat their enemies? That's how you can tell if someone is in relationship with God. Loving like God and showing mercy isn't what saves us, but is what shows that we've been saved by God, that we've entered into a relationship with God because we start acting like Him. It shows we've been saved by the God who's merciful and loves His enemies. And loving our enemies and showing mercy is what grows in our life when we've been loved by God and shown mercy by God. And Jesus, so Jesus says in verse 37, applying, what, what does this look like to be merciful even as Heavenly Father is merciful? He says, judge not, you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and you will be given to you. Judge not is, isn't a command to do no moral evaluation. You can't, you can't, you know, discern and think about how other people are acting. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's very clear from the rest of the New Testament that uh, we are supposed to do that. Jesus, and he's not saying just overlook people's sins. Just kind of ignore them. Like You can't judge them, just you know, ignore them. But he's talking about a judgmental and arrogant attitude that focuses on people's sins and treats them accordingly. And this is how the Pharisees were living, as we've been seeing in this Gospel, that they were uh, watching what people for what Jesus was going to do wrong, making sure people are keeping all the laws. They are harsh and judgmental and critical, and they were uh, excluding people and condemning people, and they looked down on other people, and they measured people by their obedience. And they were against people who didn't do what they thought they were supposed to be doing. They had a critical attitude. So ask yourself, on those people that, you're hard, that are hard for you to love, are you like this towards other people? Do you hold people's faults, sins, and mistakes against them. And I can relate to this command because it's very easy for me to see 
you know, what is going wrong, what needs to be fixed, what's broken, um, what's the problem, and get really focused on that and miss out on actually seeing the person. And when I'm overly focused on pro- problems, I can get into this against attitude, like I'm against this person, you know, they're doing things wrong and now I'm against them. And I know when I've slipped into it, uh, because, and I think, um, okay, I need to get right with God. Obviously, I'm not seeing how God has treated me. And there's one author who calls it mercy forgetfulness, that we forget the mercy that has been shown to us. And I've, got, I've forgotten the mercy I've been shown and how much I need it when I start slipping into the, I'm against someone because of their failures or sins and problems. And that same author says, uh, the person who is the best at giving mercy is the person who knows how desperately they need it. And when I get into an against attitude or a condemning attitude or a judging attitude uh, towards somebody, I know I've forgotten the mercy that I desperately need, and that's why I'm not being merciful. And Jesus calls his disciples to a life of love, mercy, forgiveness, and generosity. And, and taking the role of, of judge in someone's life is not our role to take. It's not our responsibility. Judgment is left to Jesus. That's his role. Forgiveness is our responsibility. And the question is, are we quick to judge and condemn and slow to forgive? Or are we slow to judge and condemn and quick to forgive? And this doesn't mean we don't do any moral evaluations of people's actions. It's clear from the Bible that we are supposed to do that. But it's what is our attitude? Is our attitude, I'm for you, not against you? Or is it, I'm against you and not for you? Like, I'm not on your side. Which is our attitude in it? And what can we expect from God if we live this way? The rest of verse 38 says, uh, Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, will be measured back to you. And the image of this good measure comes from the marketplace, um, where if you're buying like grain or corn from somebody, um, the seller would take and have this little container. Like, you know, I want this much corn. They have this little container, and they might uh, bend down and like kind of put it between their knees, their legs, and then like start filling it up. And they'd fill it up about three quarters. Then they'd shake it so that would get the kernels and or the grain or whatever it's to settle down more. Uh, and then they put some more in it. And as they're doing so, they'd be tapping it so it kind of settles down uh, more into the thing. And at the end, they would uh, fill it up so that there'd be like this little cone, you know, fill it up as high as you go. So this is like it's at the top, but I'm going to fill it up all the way with this little mountain of, of grain or corn on the top. And then from there, even before that, they might have even like bored a little hole in it to make sure even more grain could fit in. So it's this image of the person who's buying is getting everything they could possibly get. It's this generosity of like the seller's not trying to rip me off, like, you know, I'm just going to pour it in quick, and, you know, I could, it could, and by the time you get home, it's like, what the, you know, when you buy a bag of chips, and you're like, this thing is huge, and it's like, chips are like, like five chips in it, and it's like, they didn't want that, or like, you got this thing, you bought it, and you get home, and it's like half full, but it was like this image of, you know, we're going to put it in, shake it up, and we're going to press it down, and we're going to keep, we're going to make sure you get as much as you can. And this, this image Jesus uses is saying, if we want to measure stingy to other people, then that's what God is going to measure to us. If we want to measure generously and mercifully to other people, then that's what God's going to give to us. On June 17th, 2015, there was a, a terrible tragedy followed by remarkable displays of mercy. And Dylan Roof entered Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and he attended a Bible study that lasted about an hour, 
And when people began to pray, he, he stood up, um, and I'll be a little more discreet because of our kids in here, he stood up, uh, and he had what this is in my hand, and he started um, shooting it. And he asked somebody on the, told somebody on the floor, like, I'm going to leave you here so that you can tell the story of what you've seen here today. And in total, um, nine people lost their lives in that church. And he was a self-professing white supremacist. And at the bond hearing two days later, relatives and friends were invited to listen to what was his sentence and what was happening in court. And they lost mothers, sisters, sons, husbands, and wives. And this was the, the first time they had come face to face with the person who had murdered their family members. And they were invited to make a statement, and, and Nadine Collier had, had lost her mother, Ethel Lance, and she was the first one invited to make this statement. And she stood up and said something unexpected, and while fighting back to you, she said to Dylan Roof, I forgive you. You took something really precious from me. I'll never talk to her ever again. I'll never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. And then others offered similar expressions of forgiveness. And none of them planned it beforehand, but it's just what happened. It just seemed like that was what was right to do in the moment. And Chris Singleton, whose mom was murdered by Ruth, expressed forgiveness at a baseball game, separate incident from this. In a USA Today article, they write, Singleton notes that Ruth set out to start a race war. He finds solace in the fact that the community reacted in a way opposite of what Ruth was expecting, but that brought them together. So the person who was acting as an enemy had one intent, but the people he hurt reacted the opposite of what uh, he wanted. There are three options for how we love others. Love like others have loved you. Love like you want to be loved. Love like God has loved you. And these grieving, hurting people chose to love like God had loved them. They chose to love someone who had murdered their loved ones. They chose to love an enemy and they expressed it through forgiveness instead of condemnation. And so we ask, which one will we choose? Which one will you choose? Uh, to love like others have loved you is to enter into transactional ra- relationships. You do to them what they've done to you, or what you expect them to give to you. You only give this if there's an expected return. And the question is, what's in it for me? To love like you want to be loved is a different mindset. We, we give whether there's something for us in it or not. We, we, do, we don't do to others what they've done to us. We're not asking, you know, what do they deserve? We're asking, what would I want from them? How would I want them to treat me? How would I want to be loved? And to love like God has loved you is even more powerful. To love like you want to be loved means you think about what you would want done to you. Like, how would I want to be loved in this situation? And we kind of think it through, like, okay, that's what I want them to do to me. But to love like God has loved you means you're actually imitating somebody else's love. You've already been loved by God, and now you're imitating something that you've been given and experienced. It's not just thinking, well, how would I want to be treated? It's, now, how have I already been treated by God? And now we imitate that love. And God has perfectly loved us. Like we want to be loved, and even better than we want to be loved. We're not the best at giving ourselves what is most loving or what is best for us, but God is the best at doing that. He's the one that perfectly loves us all the time. And loving like others have loved us is to give to them what we've experienced from them. But loving like God has loved us is to give to them 
what we've experienced from God. So which do you find yourself most often doing? Loving like others have loved you? Loving like you want to be loved? Or loving like God has loved you? And loving like God moves us into transformational relationships. We've, we've been transformed by God's love, and now that's transforming how we love others. And that will perhaps transform them as well. And God loves through us. The, the love that God has shown to us, He now wants to show through us. It's a transformational thing. We become these channels of God's love to other people. And if we want transformational relationships, we have to change how we measure the love we're going to give to others. Do we measure it based on what they've done to us? Do we measure it based on what we'd like them to do to us? Or do we measure it based on what God has done to us? Consider this for a moment. Who's, who's the most loving person in your life? Who's the most loving person in your life? Who loves you the most? And what makes them most loving? Why are they loving? What, you know, this is the most loving person in my life. What makes them most loving? And the most loving person in your life is probably the person uh, that you would say, they love me even when I don't deserve it. The most loving person in your life loves you even when you don't deserve it. They don't treat you like an enemy even if you're acting like one. Hurtful, disrespectful, mean, grouchy, cranky, short, harsh, vengeful. And for this reason, the most loving person in your life is probably the person closest to you. The people closest to you are the ones most often receiving your bad side. When you're having a bad day, when you're stressed, when you're short, when you're cranky, when you get mad, uh, they know you best, and they still love you. And as you let them see more and more of you, they haven't abandoned you. They see more of who you are, uh, the, the you that you look like when you're stressed, when uh, you would stay home to going to other events because like, you know, I just don't feel like being there. They're still there, or they've still been with you. They've seen you with your mask off. They've seen you as you really are, not who you pretend to be so that other people will like you. And in this way, receiving love requires risk. It requires that we risk someone else knowing us, knowing who we really are. Because it's only when we show, when, when they know us, the real us, that we can know that they love us. Because as long as we're wearing a mask to cover up, or putting on a persona uh, that they think we think they'll like, or we're pretending we're better than we are, then we can't experience love because we don't know if they really love us or if they just love the mask I'm wearing or the persona I'm putting on. Do they really love me? If they really knew the real me, would they actually stick around and love me? And the people that see us are the ones we can uh, be loved by the most. And so the relationship principle is this. The person who knows you best can love you the most. The person who knows you best can love you the most. And the scary side is that the person who knows you best can also hurt you the most. And for some of us, we've been hurt by opening up to people, people that have gotten to know us, or we've shared you know, some, some part of ourselves, we've let them see our real personality, we've let them see our real struggles, we've let them see our real failures, and they didn't respond with tenderness or caring or love. And so now we think, I'm not going to let anybody know me because if they know me, then I can get hurt. But then if we do that, we're not actually able to be loved. And a friend of mine recently told me this definition of intimacy. He said, intimacy equals fully known and fully loved. Intimacy equals fully known and fully loved. If you're experiencing intimacy, you're experiencing being fully known and fully loved 
at the same time. And isn't that true? Is that when we stop hiding, we stop pretending, when we stop performing, when we uh, start letting people see our true selves, is when we can be fully loved while being our true selves. And we feel that closeness and connection. Like, I can just be myself around these people. I don't need to put on any sort of show. And so we feel loved. In our relationship with God, He already knows us fully. There's no hiding from Him. There's no hiding uh, behind our masks. There's no putting on personas or pretending that we're better than we are uh, with Him. He just knows it all already. And yet, and so because God knows us the best, more than any other person in your life, He can love us the most. God has perfectly loved us even while we were enemies of His. God is the best lover. He's the ultimate lover. And so if we're thinking, well, how am I going to actually obey those three, do, do that? How am I going to love like God? Well, in order to love like God, you need to be loved by God. In order to love like God, you need to be loved by God. And God is the most loving person in your life. And the question is whether we're feeling and experiencing that love. Do we actually know that he's loving us? And to be honest, I have not been an easy person to love the past two or three weeks. I've been stressed, I've been down. I've you know, felt uh, impatient and kind of annoyed with almost everything. So cranky, grumpy, and harsh. And Kate has let go of a lot and has looked past a lot. And she's also said, I forgive you a lot because I've had to apologize a lot. And I sometimes notice her let things go like, oh, that came out kind of harsh. And she would just kind of keep talking to me respectfully uh, and lovingly and caringly and calmly like it didn't happen. But I didn't, in that moment, I didn't receive it as love. I wasn't feeling loved in that mm-hmm. moment. And I thought, you know, maybe that didn't sound as bad as I thought of it, or maybe she didn't notice it. But as I was praying this week about this sermon, I was praying, like, God, you know, how, how do we love our enemies, and how have you loved me? I realized, wow, the last two or three weeks, Katie has been showing me a lot of love. And in that moment, I was realizing, like, going, going back, like, she's been loving me. I've been an enemy been treating her, you know, but you know, from the outside, it's like, you're not treating me very nice, but she's been loving me through it, and all of a sudden I felt this appreciation, this gratitude, and feeling very loved by her, and but also realizing, and, and feeling this, my heart warming toward her as I realized, wow, she's been loving me, and I didn't really realize it. And this showed me that we can be very loved, and yet not feel very loved. Somebody can be loving us a lot, and we aren't even seeing it or receiving it or experiencing it. We may not be aware of their love that they're showing us. Or we might not be aware of our sin that's making us very hard to love. Or we might not be receiving their actions as love. You know, think of children. You know, how often do they think, this is the worst. You, know, you said no to me, you can't have this, you know, this thing or whatever it is you want to do. Like, parents, or Kids do not often experience their parents' no as love, and yet, so they're not receiving it as love. It's only later that they're like, wow, you know, my parents are really great. So, if we think about in our lives, this whole scenario is in the context of uh, religious um, persecution, of people getting kind of beat up, whether it's emotionally or verbally or physically, for their beliefs. So it's all in the context of of our religious beliefs, what we're doing for them. And then we may ask, sometimes we just, we do everything we can not to offend someone, to not ruffle feathers, to not rock the boat, to keep the peace, to make sure people like us, to keep their opinion of us high, 
to not um, step on toes, and we can kind of walk in eggshells around people when it comes to our beliefs. But Jesus is saying, I'm kind of expecting people to have issues with your beliefs and who you're loyal to, but what can uh, make us into people uh, and what enables us and strengthens us to have beliefs that other people may not like and talk openly about them? How, what can strengthen us and enable us to be able to do that, to be able to say, I know that they're going to, what does Jesus say here? Hate you, curse you, exclude you. Um, revile you, talk poorly about you. How, what enables us and strengthens us to have that? And the, and the answer is, it's God's love. How do we become people who love our enemies, who are willing to even have enemies? And it's in order to love like God, we need to be loved by God. And we don't love to make us happy. We don't love to get something in return. We, we love because we've already been loved. We love out of the joy of being loved and out of the overflow of it. We don't just try hard to love my enemies. Like, God, I have these hard people in my life. I have these people that are enemies. I'm scared of people. We don't say, I just need to try harder. No, we need to receive God's love for us. And so how do we experience God's love? How do we receive it? Uh, there's four, you know, I'm going to get four ways. There's a lot more ways. But you know, first, we see it in Scripture. And we put ourselves in a position to receive God's love. Hey, okay, God's already loving me. How do I actually open myself to receive that love and experience it and feel it? And we see, can look to Scripture that tells us about all the things God has done, shows us the cross of Jesus Christ, the most loving act God has done. It demonstrates God's love for us. And it shows us God's love is a proven fact. He's, Jesus has already died. He's already sent His Son. In Romans, the words are, Jesus died for the ungodly, the unrighteous, the ungrateful, sinners, and God's enemies. Romans 5 says, uh, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So in Christ, uh, nothing can turn God against us. So we can see, God's proved his love for me. He already knows I'm messed up, otherwise he wouldn't have sent Jesus uh, and you know, loved the world and gave his only Son. If I could have done this on myself, if he knew I wasn't going to have shortcomings and failures, uh, he actually sent his son to die for his enemies. And second, the Holy Spirit is God's love poured into our hearts and is the seal of his love for us. And the Spirit takes what Jesus has purchased for us, which is a relationship with God, and he applies it to us and lets us experience it. And Jesus, the Spirit uh, allows us not to just say, okay, Jesus died for sins, but Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died for me. He makes the Spirit enable us to see this is God's love for me in Christ's death. And the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.20, In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so you can ask God, God, you give me the Spirit so I can know and experience your love. And so you can say, would you let me feel your love? Would you let me taste and see the joy and delight you have in me, of the love you've given me. And uh, a prayer I recommend is Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. It's like, I don't know how to pray that. Pray Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, or pray uh, Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. Those would be great things to pray. So third, we can practice gratitude. Just as I was unaware of Katie, how Katie was loving me, we can be unaware of how God loving us. And so create rhythms and habits in your day and in your week where you say, 
thank you to God, where you recognize the things he's given you. And we started doing this uh, at the dinner table with Hudson, where we try to start the meal. Uh, you know, what, did you, what are you thankful for today? You know, he's, he's working on it. Uh, what are you thankful for today? And then we go through things we felt. When did you feel happy today? When did you feel sad or scared or mad? And we go through those, and we're trying to help us have this rhythm where we are saying, uh, there's things for us to be thankful for, and we're looking at it as a family. Yeah, there's things that have made us happy today. And Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known, made known to God. And so we can begin our prayers with a thank you, rather than, here's all the things that I'm seeing that I need and I haven't gotten yet, which is kind of not recognizing God's loveness. We're starting our prayers with, I'm going to say, recognize all the things that you have given me and say thank you for them. Lastly, we, we need to receive God's love through his people. God's people are God's delivery system for his love. God's people are God's delivery system for his care. And often we think, God, I'm going to sit alone by myself and just wait for you to love me. And it's like, well, most often we experience God's love and care through other people. We're made in his image. We've been redeemed in his love. We have his love poured into us by the Holy Spirit. So God uses other people. As we think of what is a disciple, what does it mean for us to be disciples in the community of disciples? A disciple is someone who was once God's enemy, who has been loved by God, and who has been transformed by God's love to love their enemies. And so now we don't treat anyone as enemies. We don't have an us versus them attitude. We, we aren't against people, but are for people. And you might consider, what might God be doing in your life, how is he working in your life by having people that seem as enemies? That's, why did God put this hard person in my life? Why did God put this difficult person in my life? And in part, it's for us to realize, oh man, they're just not treating me right. This is terrible. It's like, oh, they're treating me like an enemy. This is how I've treated God. And then we realize, wow, God, I'm not very easy to love, and you have loved me. I'm difficult to love, and you have loved me. And that is possibly something God is doing through putting those people in your life, teaching us humility, laying down our rights of like, no, I deserve this respect, I deserve to be treated this way, but teaching us to lay down our rights. I want to close with just this, maybe you're wondering what the mystery board, like, oh, it's hard, it's hard, it's like the wrong side, I can't write on it. What's back? This is uh, a mentor of mine, um, put on his Instagram account, and I really liked it, and so I wrote it down. So he was like, okay, what is grace? Grace is fully known, this is his little you know, comments, scary, right? It's fully known, being fully known for someone to see all the junk in your life. That's scary. But grace is fully known, yet fully accepted, fully adored, fully commissioned. And then he put his, this little thing, wow, you know what? For us to be fully known, God to know everything going on in our life, everything we've done in the past, even knowing everything we're going to do in the future, and all the struggles we have and unbelief and failure and sin and the pride, you know that song, I Lay Me Down, you know, pride and hatred, God sees the things, He sees how we treat people as enemies and how we treated Him as enemies, running in the opposite way of what He commands. So we're fully known, and yet in Christ, fully accepted, fully adored, and not just like, okay, cool, now i got nothing to do, but He entrusts us with something. You were my former enemies, 
But now I'm actually going to give you the mission. Uh, you're going to be the ones who are going to carry out my mission on earth of spreading the good news of what it's like to be fully known, get fully accepted, fully joined, fully commissioned. And he sends us out who once were his enemies are now sent out as his ambassadors. And this is the good news. This is the gospel, the gospel of grace that we believe in. So we, we consider the community. What if we lived in this reality as disciples of Jesus? I am fully known by God and fully loved. And then what if we were the channels through which we were showing that to one another? Like, we can be fully known to each other and receive full love in return. And then what if we were doing that out in the world? What if we were a community who could do this for each other and then who was showing that to people in the world? Even people in our life who are like, they hate that I follow Jesus. They'd be offended if I talk to them about Jesus. And yet, I'm going to show them this love that I've been given. And there's this artist, Ren Collective. We have a few songs with them in our songbook. They have a song called Unconditional. And the song ends with this line. It's, uh, it's kind of like them speaking on God's behalf. Your heart, or, or they're, they're talking to God about his heart. Your heart is to welcome me just as I am. But to be loved is to be changed. So we come to God fully known as we are. But then it says, to be loved is to be changed. To be loved by God is to be changed into somebody different who loves our enemies. Let's pray. God, this can be so difficult for us to grasp that we sometimes don't even feel like we ever were your enemies or so long ago that we uh, have forgotten. But we were your enemies and we still live our lives oftentimes against your law and not and against your will. But even though you fully know all of that, we also fully love. And would you take this truth and plant it in our hearts? Would you let us experience it and feel it in our daily lives? Uh, through you, through your spirit, through your people, through your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen.